Welcome to Right Side of the Brain, the podcast created by Interact Stroke Support. Interact are a charity that take professional actors into hospitals and stroke clubs to deliver a live interactive reading service to stroke survivors. And we now also deliver the service virtually, directly into people's homes. Please visit our website, www.interactstrokesupport.org, for more details. This week is Peter Levine. Peter is a researcher, an author, a clinician, and instructor. He is the author of the book Stronger After Stroke. He's the co author of dozens of peer reviewed journal articles about recovery from brain injury, an academic and an invited instructor helping clinicians and brain injury survivors leverage brain plasticity for recovery. Peter was a research associate at the University of Cincinnati College of Medicine and the Kessler Institute for Rehabilitation, as well as being a consultant at the Brain Laboratory located in the Ohio State University Medical Center. This interview was recorded during the period of the lockdown. What is that about? What's going on with the guitar? Oh, uh, it's a Brunswick, a Brunswick acoustic. Oh, very nice. Are you a guitar I, I don't player? I, I try to be. <laughs> really? It, it's well, always a challenge. Yeah, I, I, I am a beginner. I'm 55 years old, Peter, and I think I'm going through a midlife crisis. So I, you know, uh, this uh, last Christmas, I said to my wife, do you know what? I'm going to learn guitar. I, I've never played it before, never tried it. And I thought, no, we're in lockdown. We all have to work from home. I'm going to use the, the spare time that I save traveling, that I normally travel into my, my office. I'm going to spend that 45 minutes just learning how to play a guitar. And so I'm a real, real beginner. In fact, today, I've been just going around the house, Peter, swearing like, like a trooper, because I've, I've been trying to do the F bar chord uh, and I was thinking, oh, I can't, I can't do this. But apparently it's really hard and, you know, it, it, it takes a lot of time uh, to, yeah. to do. So, uh, but I'm you? enjoying it. I mean, I'm enjoying trying even the simple songs, you know, with two chords, horse with no name and stuff like that. You know, yeah. that, that, that's my level at the moment. But, you know, I'm, I'm hoping it's a beautiful thing. Th exactly. You know, and I'm thinking, look, if I could just carry on, just improve day by day, day by day, then maybe next Christmas I get an Epiphone. I get I get a, a Les Paul Epiphone, something like that. You know, so then I'll feel I've, I've earned it, you know. <laughs> That's much different than when you start at like 17 and you're just trying to get a $25 guitar from the place down the street that's selling it. You're talking about getting a Les Paul and it's your second year. It's somehow, and it just isn't fair, but it's okay. Yeah, but you're it's the advantage like, of being a middle-aged man. That's right. That's you the see? thing yeah. we have. Yeah, that's the advantage. We could say, do you know what? I'm, if I want it, I'm going to I'm gonna have it. Afford it. I work hard. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So, um, it's such a pleasure to meet you and and thank you so much um 
you know, for contacting us. Um, Peter, why don't we start? Well, we've started already, really. But um, t tell us, tell us more about you. T tell us about who is who is Peter L Levine. So um, let's see. How do I start that? You know what I'm good at? I'll tell you what I'm good at. I think is making complicated stuff simple. Um, when I was a kid, I um, my family moved a lot. Like, uh, think about somebody that you know that moved a lot from kindergarten through 12th grade. We have 12 grades in, in, uh, before college here. Um, just get that. Maybe you, maybe you've moved a lot. I went to 14 different schools, K through 12. Right. And the thing that's, and a lot of them were international moves. So I struggled with school. And part of it was because my own obstinance. I'd, they'd say, well, you got to learn this algebraic equation or whatever it was. And I'd say, well, I just got word last night. We're moving in another couple of months. So all I got to do is wait you out and then I'll be gone. So my point is that school always frustrated me. And the complexity in computers and all this stuff that we have to deal with and the taxes, we're doing the taxes here in the United States now. Everything is so hard. And the reason it, I think it is, is that the people that came up with it never bothered to do the work on the front end so that it would be simple for people forevermore. So when I got involved in clinical research, the thing that kept coming back to me was the simple stuff, the stuff that, um, that all of the brain scanning technology and all of our research, all the research from around the world looking at stroke recovery, um, it was all coming down to basic stuff that we've known as human beings for about 70,000 years. I would put it about 70,000 years. We've been around for 250,000 years, but it was 70,000 years ago that they think that we started using tools to make things. And then we had to get really good. You got a tool behind you, you got a guitar. I mean, that's that need to practice something until you're good enough and you're never good enough with guitar, but you're never good enough with anything. So, but we have inherent in us this ability to practice things like no other animal can or ever will. You could be a wolf, you learn how to hunt. Once you can hunt stuff, you're king of the junk, king of the whatever your wolves are the kings of, and you end up being able to hunt till the end of your life. You don't work at being the best hunter ever or a new kind of hunting, or maybe today I'll go up in the mountains and I'll hunt. You just become a good hunter and that's it. You plateau. With human beings, there is this internal drive to get better at stuff. If we can use that to help stroke survivors get better, then all the complexity comes out of it. And, you know, I've written a book about stroke recovery and it's really about how do you make this stuff simple so that people with brain injury can understand it so that people that care for people with brain injury can understand it. And so clinicians can understand it because they're just as flummoxed as everyone else is. So I'm, I'm a simple guy. That's who I am. The book is called Stronger After Stroke, Your Roadmap to Recovery. But what I'm interested to know before we talk about the book is how how did you end up with an interest in stroke? So um, I have a, a degree in physical therapy. I came to it later in life. I was um, actually this this has to do with the previous thing I was talking about. Um, I have a previous bachelor's degree. 
but during my entire bachelor's degree, just after high school, I really wanted to play drums in rock bands. That was like my whole thing. Um, my second degree is in physical therapy. And I worked in what we call skilled nursing, nursing homes um, here in the States. And it was, uh, it was enlightening and was very interesting. But I got an offer to go into clinical research at a very big hospital, a very famous hospital here in the United States called the Kessler Institute, which is in New Jersey. And they had a very large research department and they were, they were very well known for spinal cord injury. They wanted to start a small group looking at stroke. And it was a great time to be interested in that stuff because we were going through a big sea change. All of a sudden, we could scan the brain. We could use functional magnetic resonance imaging, um, later on other forms of brain scanning, but we could also do really good kinematics. That is that um, if you wanted to measure how well somebody walked in even up until the late 90s, what you would do is you would take a videotape of the person walking and then you would take a goniometer. I don't have one here, but it's, it's a way of measuring joint angles and you'd put it up against the little curved screens. Because remember back in the 90s, all the screens were kind of curved, right? So you'd have to get this piece of plastic and you go, bring it up to uh, 45 seconds and you'd get the angle of the knee. Okay, bring it up to 46 seconds and you get the angle of the knee. That's the way we used to do it. Now we have infrared cameras and we can tell very nuanced ways that people learn how to move. As soon as you do that, you can also scan the brain and see if the brain has changed. Once you see that the brain has changed and usually shortly thereafter you get movement changes, um, that's what I started to experience in clinical research. But I was in a lab that, that was, our part of the lab was obsessed with uh, musicians and athletes. Let's say a musician or an athlete had a stroke. How would they practice? I mean, I was a musician. My two buddies in our lab were, one was a, a really high level swimmer. The other uh, was a high level lacrosse player, which is a, a game we play here in the States. And, uh, and so we started thinking, why are we making stroke recovery so complicated? I mean, therapists would go to school and they'd learned all these handling techniques and these things you're supposed to do. And it got incredibly complicated. Why don't we just treat them like athletes? What are athletes good at? Practice. What are musicians good at? Practice. Good musicians love to practice. That's what makes them good. That guitar that's behind you, I don't know if this has happened to you yet, but it will start to call you. That's why the first thing I saw on your screen was not you. It was the guitar. I'm more interested in that than I am in people. It has a physical thing. Drums do the same thing to me. I have this physical need to play it. Why can't we leverage that to help stroke survivors rather than making it this, this thing that's driven by the clinician? Let's make it internally driven because here's the thing about neuroplastic change in the brain. Nobody can do it for you. So you can have the best clinician in the world. Unless it comes from the inside out, it's not going to happen. I'm not super sure I've answered your question, but I'm going to leave it at that. This is really interesting because what what you seem to be implying and something that we have found, uh, Peter, over the years, 
when when Interact has gone into hospitals and, and taken professional actors into hospitals to to read to stroke patients, the purpose is, you know, to, to, to stimulate memory, stimulate language, alleviate the depression, etc. But what we historically have noticed is that the the medical model of stroke rehabilitation always regarded our charity as an addendum to the proper stuff of medicine rather than looking at us it, it more from the view of actually these type of engagements artistic creative engagements have ju just uh, as as much uh, uh, important a place as any sort of drug that we may give to the to the to the stroke patient the things have slowly changed in the uk i don't know if it's the same in the states but but that there is more of an acceptance of that and i think what you seem to be implying are two things correct me if i'm wrong number one actually we can keep things simple things don't have to be overtly complicated for people number two the power of repetition and and how repetition can help neuroplasticity and and how neuroplasticity of the brain is inherently linked to repetition i think that's one of the themes of your book would that be would that be a fair assessment yeah it is and it's it's interesting how do you get somebody to do a lot of repetitive practice if all they're practicing is something that they used to do perfectly well where's the motivation in that you know when you play guitar Every day you're learning something new. You learn French. Every day you're learning a new word. All of a sudden you're asking people to just relearn something they used to do perfectly well. So the motivation is gone. But repetitive practice is one way of vectoring in change in the brain. Let me give you a couple of other ideas. Um, something that will also work to make you a better guitar player. And you probably inherently know this. The first is mental practice. Our um, lab was the first to do it. It's actually a colleague of mine, Stephen J. Page, a very well-known researcher here in the U.S. And his idea was athletes imagine performance before they perform, as do musicians. Often it comes to you in this sort of three-dimensional movie where you're actually living in the moment of the performance. And it's so real. And it's so real because the brain thinks it's real. Here's the weird part about mentally practicing something. The muscles involved in the, uh, um, in the movement will fire in the same order and for the same duration as if you actually do the movement. They just fire very minutely. It can be picked up on electromyography, but you wouldn't be able to see it. You wouldn't be able to feel it. And the portion of the brain dedicated to whatever that movement is also lights up in a very similar pattern compared to if you actually do it. So let's review. If you imagine playing a chord on guitar, that portion of the brain lights up and those muscles fire for in the same duration um, and in the same order as if you actually do it. Here's a new thing though. And we've known that for a long time. Athletes known it, musicians have known it, everybody uses it. Um, we showed it worked in stroke. The other thing that works is something called action observation. And that's simply where you observe somebody doing something. So as you go through your career as a, as a uh, 
as an aspiring guitar player, you will go out and see musicians. Now it's easier than ever on YouTube, but you'll go out and see a guitar player and, uh, and you'll come back a better guitar player. You've heard, I'm sure, of these mirror neurons. Mirror neurons are these things that, uh, that human beings have where we can use facial expressions and body movements to, you know, as an actor, you know this, to really express to a lot of people all at once what you're feeling. Other animals can't do that. So we use mirror neurons in order in, in something called action observation, where you observe somebody else doing something. The, the portion of the brain that would do that movement that that other person is doing lights up, just like in mental practice. And the muscles fire in the same duration and in the same order as if you were to do it. So you have three ways you can do it. You can actually move. You can watch somebody else move, or you can imagine doing the movement. So yeah, it's a lot of repetitions, but there's other lazy ways of, of vectoring it in. Let, let me let me uh, do a compare and contrast. Um, in the United Kingdom, if somebody has a stroke, they're, they're in the hospital. And then when it comes to the point of discharge, they, they leave hospital. Now, usually post-hospital discharge, Peter, they would get six to eight weeks of occupational and speech therapy uh, to, to help them along their way. After that, that's it. Effectively, they're then on their own. C could I learn more about what, what, the, what the situation is in the United States? Is, is that a similar pathway? Or, or is stroke treated totally differently? So I, I miss the numbers because I in one ear out the other. You said 12 to 18 weeks? Uh, six to eight weeks six after eight weeks. Okay. after hospital discharge, they will have occupational or speech therapy for about six to eight weeks, and then they're on their own. And typically, do they do that in, in a rehabilitation hospital, or do they have somebody coming in to their house? Or is it a combination of the two? Yeah, so no, no. So what I, what I'm, what I was meaning is, when they they'll have occupational and speech therapy in the hospital for as long as they're in the hospital, and then when they're told, right, you're about to be discharged, they will go home. But once they're home, or in a or in a, a residential care home, whatever it is, they they are then given an additional six to eight weeks of occupational or stroke therapy. Uh, in the community setting, not in the hospital. And then after that, they're on their own. And I just wanted to know what, what is the pathway or the model that, 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 that operates in the States? One of the things that, that my book gets dinged about is when um, I read reviews of it uh, from Britain is that it's, they feel like my, my book is written for an American audience. And I think that this, this is part of it. Um, so, our healthcare system is such that, um, yes, you're right, that we do basically the same thing. Um, six to eight weeks, yeah, that's about what you get. What they're looking for is a plateau, right? A plateau it means that the stroke survivor isn't getting any better. Now, you could argue that the reason they're not getting any better is because clinicians can't measure things very well. And that's very true. But here, what happens physiologically, and I don't want to get too, mu too much into the weeds and into the complexity, but 
you have a, an area that's infarcted after the stroke, it's dead, it cavitates, it fills with cerebral spinal fluid. Let's say that it's the size of a ping pong ball. There's an area around that ping pong ball that the neurons are not dead. Right after the stroke, they're said to be stunned. They call it cortical shock. And over the next, as you say, six to eight weeks, it's just about in that time period, usually uh, between the first week and the third month, right in there, um, those neurons rush back online and the person makes a pretty good recovery. I mean, they tend to they tend to go up pretty rapidly because brain is just coming back and they they ride that wave of natural, it's called natural recovery or spontaneous recovery. It just kind of happens. It has not very much to do with rehab, although rehab clinicians think it has a lot to do with them. It has to do more with getting them up and moving and re-engaging that brain as it's coming back online. We don't have nationalized healthcare. So once you're on your own, you are on your own. I mean, they'll let, I hate to say this, it's my country, but they'll let you die in the streets of bankruptcy. Um, the other thing that, that I think in the UK you don't deal with as much is in the United States, the claim is that a, having a stroke in your life will cost you about $140,000, which is absolutely ridiculous because just the lost wages will cost you more than that. Um, you know, but maybe you can educate me on this. In the UK, if you have something that so disables you that you're not able to go back to work, there is a way to compensate for that in terms of not just the healthcare aspect of things, but also your income. That's true, isn't it? Yes, that's correct. So, so you you then are uh, you can potentially have various. Uh, we have a, a what's known as the benefit system here, uh, where you uh, could be. Uh, entitled to things like disability benefits to help you and various uh, because you may you may be suffering unemployment you may have uh, an entitlement to to uh, various other benefits as well so i think that the the the, the state help obviously is going to be a, a, a larger here in the uk than it would maybe in the states where historically that is not something that we associate with the United States. What One thing that struck me with what you were saying, and I think this is similar, is that a lot of stroke survivors say to me, they say, Nierge, you know, uh, a lot of these doctors, they said to me, you're going to make this, you'll, you'll make a recovery, but, but whatever, wherever you are after six months, that's it. And so then what they do is that they try to, you know, do occupational speech therapy, they get to that six-month stage and, and for the, the stroke survivor, they're thinking, this is it for me now. Uh, this is, I can't, I can't now, I can't now go beyond that. And they, they, a lot of stroke survivors are quite annoyed about that because they've, they have made incredible improvements many years later. And it's, it's almost as if there's too much negativity within the... Um, medical model so to speak uh that 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 sort of holds them back is is that a similar thing that happens in america yeah and can you imagine how insidious it is because the person who knows the most about recovery your clinician your doctor your what you call a physiotherapist we call them physical therapists i'm married to one so i better say it right um 
um, occupational therapists. I mean, they're saying, ah, that's all you're going to get. You've plateaued. Um, well, the first thing the stroke survivor does is they're stunned by the news. What do you mean? Everything was going fine. I, I was getting better. What are you doing to me? So they go home and, and what do they do? They, they don't do their exercises. So they actually go down a little bit. So then they equate therapy with getting better. Um, but yeah, so after that portion of the brain comes back online and there's no more easy ride, they plateau. But there's still a lot of opportunity. I mean, we have 100 billion neurons. We have a quadrillion synapses. The loss of the number of neurons can be mitigated by the increase in the number of neuronal connections from the neurons that still exist. One neuron, uh, the average number of connections is 20,000, um, but it can go up to a quarter of a million. So you can, you can, not only that, but here's the weirdest thing. As you probably know, the right side of the body is controlled by the left side of the brain. And the left side of the body is controlled by the right. When you're a clinician, you have to learn this in school. You're like, you're lying to me. Why would they do that? It just crosses over. So it makes everything incredibly complicated. So we, now we say uh, it's a right-sided stroke, but left hemiparesis, right? What we found is that if you do enough repetitive practice, the right side of the brain will control the right side of the body. Why? Because the brain doesn't care. It just knows that that insane person has done so many repetitions and I just need more neuronal firepower to get that thing done. The brain just does it wherever it can do it. And where it often does it is on what we call the ipsilateral side, the same side. It's wrong technically, but it's right in terms of the brain because the brain's just trying to get done whatever the crazy owner wants it to get done. So, um, yeah, I kind of lost the plot there, but I think, uh, yeah, we've come full circle now. We're talking about repetitive practice again. Again, is I didn't know that. That is really fascinating that, that you could reach a point where the right side of the brain actually f fires up to, to help the, the right side of the body. I've always, like you, thought the right side of the brain controls the left side of the body, the left side of the brain controls the right side of the body, et cetera. So that's the first I've, I've heard of that. That's really interesting. I want to go back on something, if you don't mind, Peter. Um, yes. And and I, I just want to talk a little bit or, or get your uh, take on something that you said earlier about mental pictures, mental imagery, that the power of the mind uh, when we look at recovery, for example, you, you gave the analogy of uh, an athlete who may uh, visualize in their mind the, the 100 meters or the, the musician who, who vis visualizes doing the, the, the F chord <laughs> correctly or whatever it is. But they, they are in the bar yeah, chord. The bar chord. They're, they're imagining it in their minds. They see it. The, the athlete sees himself running, uh, sees his coordination absolutely perfectly, etc. Now, what you said was that as far as the brain is concerned, there's not really that much difference between the imagining of it and actually doing it. And I, I wanted to ask you, so if you're a stroke survivor 
logic would say that you should then imagine in your mind speaking perfectly imagine in your mind being able to use that limb that's currently suffering from paralysis is that correct yeah that's exactly right so um if you imagine it that portion of the brain that's dedicated to it lights up and the muscles fire they just fire minutely um the the only caveat is that the person would have had to know that movement uh prior to their stroke so if it's something like walking well unless they had their stroke in utero and people do have stroke in utero um, you can have a stroke in at any point in life you can have a pediatric stroke um, but unless they haven't learned to walk they're going to remember we call it a motor engram or a motor schema it's the memory of the movement that's what you're trying to access and you always have that you ask any person that has had any kind of brain injury, hey, in your dreams, are you hemiparetic? And they're like, no, I'm climbing trees, I'm swimming, I'm doing, I'm, you know, I've got girlfriends, you know, just, everything's going, everything's working perfectly. Um, that's what you're trying to do. You're trying to get that dreamlike state, but focused on whatever it is that you're practicing in your real life. So for somebody trying to relearn how to walk, the, they might be working with a physiotherapist to have them start to take a few steps, but they're also going back to their room and in a very directed way, remembering how it felt to walk. You know, actually we have recordings that we used that they would listen to that would take them through every aspect of, of, um, of walking so that they didn't even have to really think about how do I do this? They would just, listen to the recording that we're taking. Those are available for free. I'd be glad to tell you guys where those are. Um, but yeah, that's the idea. So you double the amount of time that that person is in rehab, despite the fact they're not even with the physical therapist or the occupational therapist, because that costs a lot of money and they can do it at home. And it doesn't burn through a lot of their clinical time or their energy because they're just sitting there trying to remember how it felt to walk prior to their stroke. Is there an appreciable difference uh, when you look at people who have who have taken on that attitude and decided, listen, you know, I've, I've, uh, I, I hear what Peter has said. I'm going to imagine these things as well as try them. I, I'm presuming that there has there have been some trials to show that you know those people who who did that made far uh, greater journeys in their rehabilitation than those who have not in doing fmri and doing some sort of hand movement and we can see whether or not the portion of the brain dedicated to that hand movement has gotten bigger number 2 is what we call kinematics where we get them to move their arm or their hand and we focus infrared cameras on them. And we take very detailed pictures of joint angle differences. And then the third thing that we do are um, these paper and pencil tests that are sp specific to recovery from stroke. Recovery from stroke has a very predictable arc. It was developed by a physical therapist, a Swede, um, Singe Brunstrom. And she was able to, way before fMRI, figure out exactly what a stroke survivor would go through um, step by step. We have paper and pencil tests that she really came up with that'll allow us to give a particular score.
that in a very nuanced way will tell whether the structure virus got. So we have this grand symphony of data, fMRI, sometimes transcranial magnetic stimulation, which is another way of looking at white matter disease after stroke. It's another way of scanning the brain. Then we have kinematics and we also have these paper and pencil tests that we do a lot of. So yes, what we found in our lab and we've been public, it's all been published in peer reviewed stuff. It's all accessible. Um, is that you look, we do it for four or five weeks and we'll get a little bit of a bump, but we're not trying to make, this is out of chronic people, right? After they plateaued, we still get a little bit of a bump, right? We're not trying to make them perfect. We're trying to get a little bit better. That big plateau, that was the big one. Now you got to start to chip away at your present active ranges of motion the same way that you're going to have to do it on that guitar or somebody who's an athlete. You know, athletes plateau all the time. Do they give up? No, they keep chipping away a little bit. What can I change in diet? What can I change in terms of mental practice? Can I go get an inspirational talk? Should I do weightlifting? Should I stretch more? Maybe I should do yoga. And they're constantly chipping away at it. That's our message. Once you've plateaued, keep chipping away because that can make the difference between going to work and not going to work or falling in love and not falling in love or being able to be a musician or not being able to be a musician. It's an important adjunct to just doing what therapy says. Peter, I, I, you've been so generous with your time, but I must ask you, what? what tell us about the, the brain laboratory. In, uh, is it in Ohio? And you, you're a, you, you're yes. a consultant there. To, tell us about it, because I, I saw that somewhere and I thought I must ask him about the brain laboratory and what, what they do there. Yeah, oh, we, it's gone through many iterations. Um, it started out at the Kessler Institute um, and uh, we didn't really have a, a name for our part of the lab. Then we moved it to University of Cincinnati, which is in the hub of the universe, Ohio, which is just the place I happen to live. And that's all I, it is. I, I remember um, a, a film, uh, uh, The Cincinnati Kid with Steve McQueen. Do you remember, do you remember that film? Oh, The Cincinnati yeah. Kid? Uh, I don't think I've oh, seen you never, that. You know, it's you're from Cincinnati, you've never seen it. Yeah, no, I've never, I, I just got stuck here because of my job. Um, but yeah, it's funny because um, every time I hear anything about Cincinnati on a, in a major motion picture of any kind or a mini series or whatever, it's always something really bad. Really? It's always like, oh yeah, it, it, it is. Um, I was just watching, you know, the show Suits, oh, yes. Megan Markle's in it. Yeah. 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 Um, and, and there's this scene where one guy says, um, look, I got you a job. He said, oh, Oh, really? Oh, that's great. Um, what is it? It's with Procter and Gamble. And the guy says, that's in Cincinnati. You may as well be put me in Siberia. It's the Siberia of the United States. Yeah, that's where I live. It's a great name, though. Since where, where did the name Cincinnati come from? Is, is that a Native American name? I think it's Italian. Oh, right. Yeah. And there's the, there's a statue someplace of Cincinnatius, who was a, a Roman emperor of some sort. But don't quote me on that. Anyway, my my question originally, my question, it was it it was uh, it was about the the, the brain um, uh, laboratory, and tell us tell right. us a little bit more about it and, and what it does because you uh, I think you're a consultant there. Yes. So then we moved our lab from New Jersey to University of Cincinnati in Ohio, and then it moved up to Ohio State, which is the big university here in Ohio, and uh, it was. You know, um, it was called the Brain Lab, basically. And we just continued uh, doing the same kind of work. The last large study we did was with a company that thought it had come up 
with a precursor for something called brain-derived neurotropic factor, which is this thing that comes in early after the stroke into the brain and helps the stroke survivor deal with its new environment. And the idea was, could we get, could we eliminate the plateau if we had this pill that would increase brain-derived neurotropic factor? Um, we did a lot of studies with transcranial magnetic stimulation, um, brain implantation, uh, robotics, um, uh, exoskeletons that you would wear, electrical stimulation, a whole bunch of, of cutting edge stuff. Um, my career now is mostly reviewing other people's work. So when you're in peer review, um, you have to have peers review your studies. And I do a lot of that kind of work now. Which I, I'm, I'm guessing that the peer review is, is the precursor for things to be published in um, you know, respected journals. Yeah. And, and we've seen what happens when scientists aren't listened to. We're all, you know, hopefully we'll see coming into this tail end of this terrible pandemic. Um, and there's a lot of people here in the U.S. And, and around the world that just won't get the immunization and they won't wear the mask and they won't do it because they believe something other than science. So, uh, you know, yeah, focus on the right things, I'd suggest. Yes. Very quickly, uh, what, yes. what, what are your views of, of the role of the arts in, in relation to uh, rehabilitation? Well, I was hoping that you would bring Helena bonham carter to this meeting that's that was my big thing i was like is she gonna be here <laughs> dang no what are the that'll motivate you right there um i look if you if you can find somebody who played a musical instrument and you can plant the seed in their head i bet you could go back to it i bet you could i mean i've done with this with patients where you know, you, you dig and dig and dig and find out they play piano and look, it's not going to be beautiful. And one of the frustrations about being a musician is if you lose a hand, uh, it's tough to get back to piano. Mm. It's tough to get back to guitar, but imagine if you could just that will to succeed. If you were, you know, um, Sharon Stone, the great actress, just uh, is about to publish a book about her stroke. I bet she wants to get back to acting. I mean, there these things that motivate people are what drives recovery. Is, is it going to be the arts? Well, as an artist, you know that that's a big driver for artists. I mean, an actor that, that can't act because they have aphasia, that's going to be a horror show. But if they could use that will to want to act, get back to acting all of a sudden the brain starts to work overtime to make all that stuff happen. So the arts are a huge, huge thing. I, I suspect that you're asking the question from the opposite direction. Do the arts have some sort of fundamental role for somebody who's not an artist? And, and that, that's a good question. You know who I'd, I'd ask about that? You. I see. I, I'm not an expert. There. Well, of course, and my, my answer is going to be yes. It, it, it has a, 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 a massive it makes a, a massive difference to, to people um, as they approach their rehabilitation. It, obviously, in our opinion, that's the, that, that's the critical thing. But critically, in the opinion of stroke survivors themselves, and this was something, Peter, I could talk to you for hours, 
but, but this was something that I wanted to talk to you about is yeah, the yeah. voice of stroke survivors because stronger after stroke, it seems to me by making things very clear and very straightforward, seems also to be a voice for stroke survivors themselves and their families. And a lot of people often feel that it's precisely that community don't have a voice that people speak about them or with regards to them, whether they're medical professionals, etc. And the actual voice of stroke patients themselves tend to be ignored. That's certainly a perception in the UK. I don't know if that's the same in the States. You know, it, it always bothered me. And I, I, I mentioned at the beginning, beginning um you know when i was a kid i moved around a lot and i was never very good at school and you know back in the 60s and 70s when i grew up if you were not very good at school they just said you know he's kind of dumb he's just kind of dumb and then in the 70s it was politically incorrect to say that they were dumb and so they would just say he's lazy and so i felt always felt this kinship for stroke survivors especially aphasic you know aphasic is the wrong word most of them are dysphagic they can speak and they can understand. It just takes a while to get out. And everybody thinks they're dumb. I could make, I, I know so many stroke survivors who after their stroke are still smarter than I am. I know a ton of them. They're brilliant people. They just have a little bit of trouble getting the words out or they have dysarthria and the mouth the muscles don't work right or whatever. And society is so quick to stamp them as dumb, but do not and but I appreciate the fact that that maybe you recognized. I think my book does do exactly that. It says, "Hey, I'm still here. You know, we have some power here, and uh, and I hope I can. I hope I've been involved in that." Well, the book is "Stronger After Stroke: Your Roadmap to Recovery" by the wonderful Peter Levine, who has been so generous with his time and for being a fantastic guest on Right Side of the Brain. Peter Levine, thank you so much indeed. I, You know what? You can tell I love talking about this stuff. Thank you so much. And next time uh, you invite me on, just bring, bring her, please. Bring Helena. <laughs> I, I'd appreciate it. Hey, Peter, will, will you come back on the show? I absolutely, whenever you want me. Oh, that that would be fantastic. I'd love to, I'd love to talk to you more. You've been such a great guest. Great, great. Thank you so much. That was Peter Levine. For more information on our work, please do visit our website at www.interactstrokesupport.org. And if you're feeling generous, please do click on the big red donate button. We very much look forward to your company on the next edition of Right Side of the Brain.